Welcome to Amici, News and Insights from the New York Courts. I'm John Carr. On February 10th, the Latino Judges Association and the Judicial Friends Association are jointly sponsoring a special Black History Month literary program focused on a new book, The Dead Are Arising, The Life of Malcolm X, by Les Payne and Tamara Payne. In that program, CBS News anchor Maurice Dubois will interview Tamara Payne. Now, the backstory of this book is a great story in itself. The book was nearly 30 years in the making, the capstone of a distinguished career of Les Payne, a very well-known and very, very highly regarded Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. For decades, Les researched Malcolm X, and for many years he relied on his daughter as his principal researcher. After Les passed away in 2018, Tamara completed the book, which won the 2020 National Book Award for Nonfiction. Technically, of course, this book is a biography, and it is a definitive one at that. But it's more than a Malcolm did this, and then Malcolm did that, and then Malcolm did this, and then Malcolm got assassinated book. It really puts this still controversial and in many ways complicated and conflicted man in context. The context of his life, the context of his influence, and the context of the times in which he lived. It is not a tribute to Malcolm X. Rather, it's a sort of in-depth, objective, and thorough analysis we'd expect of a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. Uh, Tammy, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. How are you? I'm doing well, and I hope you are as well. Now, I'm curious about the title of the program, and, the, and in particular, the use of the word arising in the title. Was, was that your idea, your father's, both of yours, or how, how, did that, how and why was that word used? Um, that was... That was Dad's idea. To, he titled the book, um, and he uh, wanted to use the word "arising" as as opposed to "rising." Um, and I guess I should kind of just mention where, where the title comes from. It comes from uh, Malcolm's when he writes a letter to Elijah Muhammad, uh, giving him updates as to how he, his recruitment efforts were going in uh, one of the cities he was organizing in Hartford, Connecticut. And in one of the letters, he writes, you know, that he was experiencing challenges, but he said that the dead there are rising. But we liked the term arising better because it really describes the whole um, idea when you're coming into your consciousness. So the action of arising from one state to another state of being, um, as opposed to just rising up from one point to another point of, like, superiority and inferiority. But this is really just about... Um, arising from one one state of consciousness to another state of consciousness, and in this case, um, the you know the idea of embracing the true knowledge of self when you join the nation of Islam. So it's kind of an active progression rather than a passive progression. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Okay. Now, why did it take 28 years to write this book? <laughs> <laughs> Well, as my father would say, is we never worked on this really full time, you know, at any point. We were um, scheduling this. I mean, my father and I, you know, we had jobs. I worked in commercial real estate, but my father, he was senior manager at Newsday, and he was managing reporters and, and news coverage. And uh, whenever the news story would break, you know, he would break and cover the news. He was a journalist to his core. Uh, he also was uh, in 
appeared weekly on CBS's Sunday edition, and he also was teaching journalism classes. And also during that time, this time he continued organizing with the National Association of Black Journalists, which he was a co-founder of, as well as co-founded another group called the Trotter Group of Black Columnists. Mm-hmm. So, and both of these organizations had annual conferences. So he, we were quite busy, and and in between time, we were working on interviewing, researching, and he he was working on the manuscript. In between all of that, it, it's real obvious there were a whole lot of uh, interviews that were done for this book, and a whole lot of research. Uh, a lot of it fell on your shoulders, I believe. Um. We did a lot of interviews, um, finding a lot of these sources, and you know, and, and during this time, I mean, my father was also passing on the craft of journalism to me, and um, and so this, you know, and for me, that was why I actually joined and, and was committed to this project of working with my father and knowing who my father was and respecting his work. What better way to really learn about him than to work with him and work closely with him? So. Um, and then there's the the whole idea of trust between, you know, he's my father and we're, we both have our best interests at heart. You know, we want this to do well. So, you know, there's there is a trust factor that you don't normally have with just other people that you're working with. You hear stories where people worked on projects and stories leak and stuff like that. You know, whereas this is we really were working closely together. We had other people that were working with us, but the core of it and the um, and the long term of this was me and my father um, really working together and, and putting this story, putting this book together. And he did the writing, obviously. It's his book. He had, you know, it was his idea really to to do this book. Um, originally, he didn't feel before he had met Malcolm's brothers, he didn't feel that we needed a book on, on Malcolm X, a biography of Malcolm X, because he felt that, um, we had the autobiography and, and the speeches, and my father's, in, you know, hugely influenced by Malcolm, um, and and you can see that in the way he had organized such organizations as the National Association of Black Journalists, as well as the Trotter Group. Um, these, you know, these are, you know, mentally, how do you protect, uh, and how do you protect black professionals in their fields um, from racism, but also how do you bring in younger people to and teach them the craft that they may not get when they go to the newspapers or wherever, uh, whatever media organization they may be working for. So you have these organizations where seasoned professionals are passing on the craft to younger people and understanding, you know, the, the larger context of how racism works and, and may be blocking people from, um, performing at their better, um, you know, at their, at their highest abilities. So, so, so obviously, um, your father was touched uh, by Malcolm, but you, you say in the introduction that your dad viewed himself, that, that Malcolm changed the way your dad viewed himself and made him come, quote, uh, quote face-to-face with his own self-loathing. Close. What's that all about? White supremacy, it, it, it impacts all of us. I mean, Martin Luther King had this saying where he talks about uh, racism and segregation, um, and I will even include white supremacy. I mean, it imbues the oppressor and the segregators with a false sense of superiority and the segregated and the oppressed with a false sense of inferiority. And this is important to understand that because when you look at the civil rights movement, how, you know, if you look at the roles of Martin and Malcolm in particular, Martin Luther King and his civil rights organizations, they were dealing with overturning the superstructure of white supremacy. 
attacking the laws of white supremacy, desegregation, um, and desegregating schools, jobs, lunch counters, where you shop, you know, buses, starting with the bus boycotts, in fact. But um, Malcolm, on the other hand, through, you know, when he got into his work with the Nation of Islam, he actually was dealing more with um, the other side of this, which is dealing with the false sense of inferiority that the oppressed, and in this case, black people, have inherited from the messaging and the practices of white supremacy. Mm. So, and and so he's attacking that and, and show, showing that black people need to understand their history and understand that we have made more contributions, even though people want to tell us, you know, that we're the lowest of the world. What, what was it about Malcolm's message as opposed to any others? There were lots of people with similar messages at the, at the same time. What was it about him that so resonated with your, with your father? Um, mostly his, his ability to analyze what was going on with racism, right? Um, he analyzed it. He, he looked at our history. He talked about, he showed how the media in particular, he attacked how the media, you know, would take, you know, people, let's say victims of racism and then called the victims, the, the perpetrators, and this is still happening today. It happened even with my father in his career. I mean, when dad would write, he was a syndicated columnist, as also what I didn't include in his list of things that he was working on while working on this book. He wrote a weekly column. Mm-hmm. And he often talked about racism and that was going on in this country, and, and particularly in cases of police brutality. And whenever he was uh, attacking police brutality and, and questioning the police and how we make the police um, – perpetrators accountable for their actions he was called the racist he was called the troublemaker hmm. Hmm. now uh, most accounts of malcolm's life focus on his adult years really you know his, his activist years you spent a, a lot of time looking at his childhood and his family history and why is that so important why is it so relevant to understanding who and what uh, malcolm was was well, it shows who malcolm was and into the world of which he was born into. Malcolm has always been presented to us as fully formed and angry without a real analysis of the context. Um, you know, as if he shouldn't be this angry. And, and, and this happens, you know, with a lot of people who are spoken, who speak out against injustice and, and, and speak truth to power, as, as the quote goes. You know, when you're speaking truth to power, power's going to push back and, and call you, you know, the troublemaker. So, understanding and, and then also will look at and take you out of context and, and isolate you. And, and that's what history has done over the years. That's what ha- happened with Malcolm. They took him out of context and just say, look at this man who's, who calls white people the blue eyed devil, for example. But they don't put that in context. For example, that one, that was a concept that was in the nation of Islam. And it was Elijah Muhammad's preaching of that. And Malcolm, who was a member of the Nation of Islam, that is the language he was using. And believe it or not, I mean, Malcolm, when he first joined the Nation of Islam, when his brothers were trying to, were talking to, uh, talking him into joining the, the organization, he was in jail at the time. Um, and they were talking to him about how white people were, were evil and, and how white people have used black people over the years. Malcolm had a hard time dealing with accepting that. And so they had to work on him to understand the larger picture of that. And it was his family that did this. And it, a lot of this also goes back to their upbringing. Um, 
Malcolm's sense of who he was as a black person in this world doesn't come from Elijah Muhammad, but it actually comes from his teachings from his parents, who are followers of Marcus Garvey, mm-hmm. and it organizes for his UN, UNIA organization. So they were teaching him, you know, about black people and black pride and the need to support um, black businesses and build up our communities and support each other. Um, you know, that's where he gets that sense from. And we don't really fully understand what that means until we really look at and listen to the stories that his brothers tell us about growing up in a household such as this. Mm-hmm. And the experience of a death of his father. You know, I, I know uh, Malcolm was always suspicious of whether his father, father's death was really a, street, a streetcar mishap or a, a cover-up racial murder. Correct. And, you know, um, if you read the book, you understand how we opened the book with the uh, in Omaha, Nebraska. Malcolm isn't even on the scene yet. He's actually in utero. His mother's pregnant with him. And uh, the local clans chapter visits the family and threatens them. Um, and, and they're threatened. The local white people are threatened by the organizing of black of black people and being conscious and strong in their communities. And so they feel that anybody that's doing this kind of work is threat is a threat to the, you know, status quo of what white people are experiencing. And they see this as being troublemakers and they want, they want the littles, they targeted the littles and they want them out of town for that. So they come and, and they threaten her. Um, breaking her windows with on horseback and uh, threaten her, you know, her and her family. And she stands her ground. She stands up to them. And we get this story from from Wilfred, who was six years old when that happened. And um, so when you're thinking about that, it's it's you know, this is the environment. This is even this is the one the world Malcolm was born into. And I, I bring that up because this is. This never changes. This white supremacy is constantly there, and it still is. So we're still dealing with it. But in the context of Malcolm's father's passing, um, when the Littles are in Lansing, they purchase farmland that you know they live on. But this farmland has exclusionary clause in the deed that deed it says that black people can't own that land. But yet they had purchased it, and unknowingly of, of this of this restriction, and. Um, their white neighbors push to have the little family evicted. They don't want them to live on that land. They push to have them evicted. They leave. And uh, they don't, I mean, they don't leave yet, but they push to have them evicted. And then after that, their house is burned down by neighbors. And so there's this environment. And then soon after that, Malcolm's father, you know, he's in a streetcar accident where he dies from his injuries. And, um, and then you still also have what's happening is there's the organization of the Black Legion happening in Lansing. So people who are part of that, they want to, you know, keep black people in check. So they say, hey, we take responsibility for that action. And Malcolm and, and, and Louise heard these heard these rumors. And so it never leaves them. But yet you also have to understand the context of the environment that they were living in. You know, I'm not saying that the Black Legion didn't threaten and kill black people, but they didn't kill Earl Little in this case. We found this out by talking with people who were alive at that point. We um, talked, we looked into the coroner report. We also looked at 
um, you know, also newspaper articles that written at the time. This there was quite a few things, um, you know, that we had to look at and talk to people to get a sense of what really happened here. But if you're going to look, say, you know, the Black Legion or the Klan, you know, did they kill black people? Yes, they did not kill or a little in this case. They did not. Hmm. So, so you're able to state that conclusively that Earl Earl uh, Little was not was not murdered by the Klan or murdered by. No, and we also are getting this because. You know, Wilfred Little was there. Um, he was he was 12 at the time when the policeman came to the house to tell them of the injury, you know, that their father was injured and to get to the hospital to try and, you know, here um, for Louise to get to the hospital before he dies. Um, and he said, you know, and, and Earl remembers how the policeman spoke and he actually believed what the policeman was telling him. But we don't just only accept Wilfred's story, we talk with other people and we're able to even get to somebody who had witnessed it and said that it was an accident, was not the Klan. Hmm, okay. Now, it seems pretty clear that Malcolm's uh, anger led him to the Nation of Islam, but what led to us falling out with the Nation of Islam and, and Elijah Muhammad? Um, anger, I mean, it's... <laughs> again, we get into this thing of anger. Um... And, and like I said, I mean, I think that we have to look at the whole trajectory, you know, of what's going on with Malcolm, too. I mean, Malcolm was in jail and his family had joined the Nation of Islam, actually not out of anger, but they wanted to do more for their community. And they were attracted to the Nation of Islam because of their tenants that were similar to what um, they grew up with in, in their household with, you know, Garvey, Garveyite principles. And, and that is why they also brought Malcolm in. But, you know, Malcolm, in understanding what is going on, he's already he's being brought in because of his family and, and their attraction, the resonance with the, the teachings, not so much that he's himself is just angry. But like there, there's a movement there, too. Um, but you also have to understand the the organization itself is working to build a community, strengthen the community and provide services for black people that are not being provided else, elsewhere and or giving the misconceived um, ideas of who they are as a people, even in education. So they're taking on the responsibility of, of educating themselves and providing that to their own people and supporting that. And Malcolm is, is continuing with that and helping, you know, spread that to other people who aren't aware of this, um, who are outside of the nation. That's why he works hard to recruit them. Mm-hmm. As far as, um, why he left, he outgrows um, the organization, and Elijah, and he's finding himself having more disagreements with Elijah Muhammad because there, he, I would say, he starts to become more angry. Because, for example, if you look at the Klan meeting, um, he Malcolm is visiting the Georgia Temple and he's um, preaching, but he's they they receive a telegram from the local Klan chapter saying that they would like to meet with. Uh, the nation of Islam and, you know, and, and Malcolm's preaching to, you know, the temple at, in, in Georgia and, and this telegram comes and they read it, but they're not, he and, and neither is the minister who is of the Georgia temple. They're not leaders of the nation of Islam. They have to go back to Elijah Muhammad and talk to him about well, how do you want to proceed with this? Elijah Muhammad sees as an opportunity to grow this organization in the South, to purchase more land, to build up more businesses and Malcolm really wanted to have more of a confrontation with the Klan. Now we can talk about Malcolm's anger here and really wanted to um, 
have a face-off with them rather than have any kind of alliance with them. He felt that any working with them um, would show it's the wrong message and it's the wrong action to take. You can't trust these people. And for Elijah Muhammad to even say that, you know, you don't, we don't trust white people. We don't, we want to live in a separate state. Um, but yet in order to do this, he, you're, you're going to trust these people to help you set up your separate state. And so Malcolm had it. This was a disagreement for Malcolm that started the rift between him and Elijah Muhammad and it grew, but this is where it starts. And, and they move on from there. Now, what what was the relationship between Malcolm and Martin Luther King? And how, how did each influence the other? Um, while Malcolm was in the Nation of Islam, they were on opposite set, sides of the civil rights um, argument um, presentation. Because what you're looking at is um, the civil rights movement, they're t- attacking the superstructure of race, of segregation, Jim Crow South segregation laws, and voters, you know, and, and wanting to protect the vote of black people, black American citizens. And so... They're attacking that, whereas the Nation of Islam doesn't vote. They want to. They don't want to participate in, in in the American experiment, and they don't want to integrate. So they want to have a separate state. So Malcolm, under Elijah Muhammad, is preaching that, and um, you know, and, and Martin Luther King, you know, and the civil rights, they're preaching integration, and you know, and the Klan is, um, they want to uphold, you know, white supremacy. So. Um, you would say at that point that, yeah, Malcolm sees himself, you know, in competition with the, with Martin Luther King and the civil rights organizations because it goes against what the Nation of Islam is doing. But also, you know, there's this thing of where you look at the media need to put one leader of all 22 million at that time, 22 million black people. And so they're go- they're gravitating to uh, Martin Luther King and and Malcolm X you know does you know he understands that that's what the media is doing but he also wants to be on top of that also he also wants Elijah Muhammad to be that that one person that represents the uh, the black people so there there's a competition there but once Malcolm leaves especially towards the end of his tenure with the Nation of Islam he realizes you know you know it, we're as black Americans we you know, we're, we're Americans. We're part of this, this, um, this country and we need to have our rights. We need to fight for our rights. And so now he's really along those, he's coming out and this is his own, um, thinking and, and philosophy towards the freedom and thriving of black people in America. So now they, they're more, more in line. Um, and he sees himself as more, you know, the more extreme side where he's dealing with the black people who are, holding on who have internalized racism and he's dealing with that but also he's saying these people once they come you know into consciousness they're going to be pretty angry you better deal with you know martin luther king the the negotiator meaning he's saying to the at that time the kennedy administration um deal with martin luther king the negotiator or else you're going to have to deal with me and these angry masses. And so he saw himself as kind of an alternative to push people to work um, and, and, and pass these laws of um, protecting black American civil rights. But then he even goes even beyond that. And this is more where he, uh, Martin, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King are much more in alignment, which is when he looks at the, it internationally. Um, towards the end of his life in 1964 and 65, you hear him talking about, you know, take bring the United States up on charges 
of violating black Americans human rights. And in doing that, he he expands on this when he travels up to Africa and the Middle East and Europe, and he's having these conversations, but also to drum up support for this, you know, for presenting this to the United Nations. And, and that's where he's going with that. And then he's also expanding through his experiences, firsthand experience of traveling, um, expanding his outlook of what's going on in the world, because he's looking now not just at what's happening in America, but what's happening in, in, in the world. So he's looking at African countries um, overthrowing their colonized powers and then having to deal with neocolonialism and how they deal with that and and supporting them in coming into their own away from all of that and moving away from that. But he was never able to fully... Um, explore that because he was assassinated in February of 1965. Sure. Now, Malcolm has been dead for close to 60 years. Why is his story relevant right now? And why is this book relevant right now? Um, white supremacy still exists. Oppression still exists. And in order to really deal and confront this, um, we have to understand how we got here and how it's how it's lasted all these years. And we also have to learn, you know, so we do that by learning from history. We learn from the works of the civil rights movement, but and Marcus Garvey and W. D. Boys and and others. Um, but also in, in learning from Malcolm and these voices, we also learn from their mistakes. But also what Malcolm's analysis of this, because what he also gives voices, he gives voices he gives voice to people who feel that they are not heard from, that they are not seen, because in oppression, um, you know, the people who are oppressed are pushed to the point where they're not to be taken seriously. And Malcolm gives these people a voice and a, and a way to deal with that and to deal with the energies that are oppressing them. And so people still are gravitating to that, and it, and it still rings true today. Hmm. That's a little disconcerting that 60 years later we're still having that discussion. But uh, We have an opportunity to change it mm -hmm. and to, we're going to make mistakes, but let's make new mistakes. Let's not repeat the same old mistakes. And, and you know, and I mean, at this point it doesn't have to be the Republicans, but right now it is Republicans, you know. Oh, forgive you know, forgive us you know for these trespasses. Don't make us accountable. We won't do. We'll learn from this, and then let watch them do it again. That's a great way to end on an optimistic note. And I'd like to uh, thank you. And uh, if our Michi listeners are interested in a, a much more in-depth conversation with you or discussion with you, uh, they can sign on February tenth, um, and they need to RSVP to S-M-A-N-Z-A-N-E that's S-M-A-N-Z-A-N-E at nycourts.gov by February 8th. Tammy, thank you so much for your time and, and good luck on, with the book. Thank you, John.